Just present yourself right now there. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So our focus today is going to be on directing our attention to our week of prayer and fasting that's going to start tomorrow. Um, and so we're going to take some time just to do three things this evening. So firstly, we'll just consider some valuable points about fasting and prayer. And then um, we'll, we'll look at the context of what's going to help us as an evening congregation um, focus our prayers together. And then we'll, we'll move into a time of having communion. Now, how many of you guys have fasted before? Very reluctant hands going up. What was it like? Is it something that's fun? Okay, Jordan gives the thumbs down. Is there anybody who actually enjoyed fasting? Did you? Okay, Greg says he enjoyed it. Years ago. He might change his mind <laughs> right now. But fasting is generally something that um, isn't really that enjoyable, I think. And there are different kinds of fasting um, that people engage in. There's one that's all the craze right now that's called intermittent fasting. So what you do is, um, and I was chatting with Adrian about this a few weeks back, so what you do is you, you have your last meal in the evening at 8 o'clock, and then you're actually fasting while you're asleep. And then you'll have your first meal the next day at 12 o'clock. So that, that's one way that people are using this principle of fasting right now. So fasting is something that really requires you to engage yourself because it's, it's not something that's that enjoyable. Now, the Old Testament and the New Testament actually teaches about the value of fasting. Um, and fasting, as we know, is abstaining from something that your body needs or craves in order to focus your attention on the spiritual aspect, on something else. And then it helps you also to pray and to seek God's will. Fasting is something that's mentioned about 70 times in Scripture. And in the Old Testament, there was actually private fasting that you would do by yourself. But then there would also be public fasting when the whole nation would fast together. And their fasting in the Old Testament times would run from um, sun up till sunset. And they would fast um, during the day. And in Scripture, there are many examples, um, as well as uh, individual people and groups of people who fasted. There's Moses, there's Daniel. We know there's this Daniel fast that we can do, and even Jesus fasted. And there are instances of fasting being mentioned in Scripture. There's one in Acts where Paul and, and Barnabas appointed elders, and they actually engaged in prayer and fasting. Esther um, actually gathered the Jews together in Susa and asked them whether they would fast for her and spend time in prayer. And then there's Luke chapter 2, this particular widow um, who was 84 years old, who never left the temple. She worshipped day and night, and she fasted and prayed, and her name was Anna. Um, and then there was Nehemiah, 
who, um, who actually, when he heard about the brokenness of the city of Jerusalem, he sat down and he wept for days and he mourned and he fasted and prayed before God. So fasting is part of what it means to be a follower of God. Fasting is actually a spiritual discipline that comes along with worshipping God. And so it can come alongside even, I would say, reading scripture, your time of devotion towards God, having fellowship with others. So it falls in that kind of category. Now, I just want to point out a few helpful things about fasting and pray to assist us as we engage with this um, from tomorrow. So why do we fast? It's actually an ancient practice, and it's something that God recognizes and he affirms. It's not a recent thing. Fasting is also a way to express your faith with your whole being. It's not just your mind that engages when you fast. It's not just your body, it's your entire being that you engage when you fast and pray. It, it, it messes up your daily program. It actually makes you think about how much the particular thing that you crave or want takes up of your effort, your time. And so it helps you in that way. It's also a way to humble ourselves and reconnect with God. And it can help us hear God more clearly. Now here are some more examples from scripture where we see people who had fasted and prayed. The Israelites fasted and they lifted up prayers of praise and confession after sinning against God. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 9. There's the one about Esther who fasts with Israel and prays. David mentions praying and fasting for his enemies in Psalm 35. Daniel fasts, we know that. There's the prophet Anna that I just mentioned. And then there's Paul and Barnabas. Now fasting is always attached to prayer. If you only fast, that's just a physical thing. So some people fast because they want to lose Wait. Some people fast for other reasons that are related to their, to their physical bodies. But in a spiritual sense, fasting is always attached to prayer when we read about it in Scripture. And when we fast, God actually notices our motives. And he notices our desires and our needs. And it actually moves him. So there's this mysterious thing, I think, that is attached to fasting and prayer, but we always persevere with it, even though it sometimes seems like nothing is happening. Now, important to note, it's not like a formula. It's not a foolproof formula that is going to force God's hand. If I do this, then God will do this. It is rather an act of faith that we exercise when we fast and pray. Now let's look at the outcomes of those particular people who prayed and fasted. When the Israelites fasted and they lifted up prayers of praise and confession, God actually welcomed them back. And when Esther fasted and prayed with Israel, and they prayed for the strength to ask her husband to spare Israel from, from Haman's plot of genocide, 
King Xerxes actually did something out of character there, and God actually moved. And then David doesn't actually materially gain from praying and fasting for his enemies, but actually quite the opposite. He reveals to the world that he truly is a man after God's own heart. And then with, with when Daniel fasts and prays to lament Israel's disobedience, God actually hears Daniel please and he sends an angel to help him to prophesy. Anna, this prophetess in the temple who prayed and fasted regularly for Israel, she actually gets to meet the Savior in person. She meets Jesus as a baby, which is a response to her actions of prayer and fasting. And then there's Paul and Barnabas who found the men that God wanted them to appoint as elders that we read about in Acts chapter 14 there. So we see in Scripture, when people fast and pray, God actually moves. It's not just something that gets done because you feel like it or because it's something, just something that we do. So there is evidence that it moves God in a way. Now, there are different methods of fasting. Now, the most common is abstaining from food um, or liquid in general. And so maybe you might decide that you're going to not eat from sunrise until sunset, and maybe you'll only drink water. Um, or maybe you'll fast from a particular meal, so maybe you'll decide, I'm not going to have breakfast, or I won't have lunch, or I won't have, um, I won't have supper. And then you maybe what would want to, and this might be something that really might hit home to you, maybe you want to give up social media for these three days of, of, of fasting and prayer. Maybe you want to give up going on Facebook or Instagram. Or maybe you want to give up watching YouTube videos for the next three days. Um, but fasting should be something that is, fasting the thing should be something that's meaningful to you. In ancient times, like for example, if we consider fasting food, it was a big thing for people to fast food. Because in ancient times, Preparing food took up a lot of time and a lot of energy. You had to find firewood. You had to collect your own water, start the fire. There was a lengthy process, and then you had to eat it within the first few uh, minutes or, or hours after you've prepared. And so it had great meaning and cost attached to it um, in the ancient times. And so as we prepare ourselves and think about what we, what we may want to do for the next three days, make it something that is meaningful to you. So let me encourage you to choose one of those methods. Maybe you want to give up food. Um, maybe it's something else like social media. Pray about that and then decide and follow through with it. Um, and now I want to actually move to what is actually going to be framing for us as evening congregation our next three days of prayer. So we are only going to be meeting together in the evenings because we are evening congregation. We thought about doing early mornings, but then that might be a little bit too rich for our blood um, because we are evening congregation because that would have been something like six to seven. 
Jordan is nodding. <laughs> He's saying no ways. He's an evening guy. So we're going to be meeting um, tomorrow evening at 7.30. Tuesday evening, Youth Life Group is going to join us here in the auditorium, 7.30 as well. And then on Wednesday evening, um, Young Adults Life Group is going to join us as well at 7.30. Um, now, we will have focused times of prayer when we do come together. We'll, we'll rearrange the room and we'll help each other to focus our time of prayer. Now, our focus is going to be on rebuilding and restoring as a theme for our week of, of prayer and fasting. And what we're going to do is we're going to use a story that occurs in the Bible, a story that is about 2,400 years old. And within the story, there are three characters that we'll look at. And so tomorrow evening, we'll consider one character, Tuesday the next, and Wednesday the next one. Now, I want to give us a little bit of context. We might get lost in this story tomorrow. So I want to give you the, the severely edited version of the story so that we can have an understanding of how it's going to flow out for us in the next evening. So at the beginning of the story, the Israelites had made a promise to Yahweh long ago. That was like in Moses' times, which was 800 years even before this. So this is like 3,400 years ago for us today. Now, the promise was if they were loyal to God, if they were loyal to Yahweh and to each other as God's chosen people, then God would bless them and make them his treasured possession. However, the people rebelled. They didn't keep the promise. They didn't keep the covenant. And then God turned his back on them and he allowed these people to live in the sin that they chose and to suffer the consequences of their actions. This is what God's judgment looks like. If you want to continue doing what you want to do and serve yourself and live in sin, then God will allow you to do that. But you need to understand that there are consequences to your actions. And so that, that's what happens. And so as we know in the story in the Bible, God's people rebel against him. They choose to live in sin. They worship other gods. And the consequences of choosing to live in the ways of other gods was that the Israelites were conquered by the Babylonians. And we read about that in 2 Chronicles and, and 2 Kings about how the story came about that they were actually conquered. Now, one of the most important events in the Bible is the Jewish exile. Exile, I think, is just a nice word for being conquered and being enslaved. And large portions of the Bible is devoted to telling us about why this happened and how God's people actually able, were able to endure this time of exile and then God redeemed them. So as I said at the end of the book of Chronicles, we are told that the city of Jerusalem is overrun and it's conquered by these people called the Babylonians. Now, when one nation conquered another nation in ancient times, what they did was they would take the most talented people, the most gifted people, they would take the best engineers, 
the best farmers, the best craftsmen, the best artisans, and they would take those people back to their own land and they would leave behind in the land that they conquered all of the old people, the sick people, the very young people who weren't able to contribute to the economy. And so that is what happened here in the story. It's actually something that we see on the African continent as well. If we think back to the transatlantic slave trade where black people, black Africans were enslaved, they took only the strongest. They took only the best farmers, the best craftsmen. And what happens that we still see today is African countries suffering because all of their best and most qualified people had been taken and had become slaves in another country. And so they took these um, Israelites back to Babylon and they became Babylonian slaves and um, they were there and they built the Babylonian Empire while Jerusalem continued to degrade and fall into ruin. And so these people were in captivity in the land of Babylon for 70 years. And um, the 70 years of captivity ended because Babylon was then conquered by the country Persia. And there was this new king of Persia when he came in after the 70 years and he was prompted by God to, lead, to allow these people to go back to Jerusalem and to go back and to rebuild. And he even offers, and, and we'll read about it in Scripture, he offers to them resources and support as they leave. Now, the people do return, but not everybody wants to go back. Remember, this was 70 years. So imagine you had been born in a different country and now your parents tell you we are going back to where we had come from. So there, were, there was a number of people who decided they don't want to go back. Um, and, they, and so they don't leave, but the people who do return, they return in three waves. And each wave of people who come back and return to Jerusalem, they are involved in different things. Different things get rebuilt and restored. And this is going to be the context of our week of prayer, our three days of prayer, of looking at these things that get rebuilt and restored. And there are three elements that get rebuilt and restored. And so tomorrow we are going to look at the first leader who leads the first group of people back to bring a restoration to what had been broken down and destroyed. And that guy's name is Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel goes back, and the element that he focuses on is the temple. So he builds back the temple. And, then, and so tomorrow, Mike is actually, Mike Leach, is going to lead our, our time of prayer, and we're going to look at the lessons that we learn from this person, Zerubbabel, who leads people back and they actually start to rebuild the temple. And then on Tuesday, we're going to focus on the next wave of people who return to Jerusalem. And that wave of people is led by the prophet Ezra. And Ezra actually starts to restore the worship and the spiritual side that had been broken down in Jerusalem. And then on Wednesday, 
Um, Malcolm is going to lead us as we look at the prophet Nehemiah, who's the third one to lead a group of people back, and they focus on rebuilding the walls. So that's what our, our week is, our evenings are going to look like in the, in the following few days. So I want to encourage you to actually prepare your hearts for that. Prepare your hearts to start thinking about rebuilding and restoration. And, and as you fast, and as you start thinking about these things, actually look at these particular characters. Go into scripture, read more about what actually happens there, and see what the Holy Spirit says to you. Now, as we move to a time of communion, I'd like to stay with this theme of, of rebuilding. Um, when we look at the New Testament, we see that Jesus is called the cornerstone. He's called that in Acts chapter 4. He's called the cornerstone in Ephesians chapter 2. He's also called the cornerstones in 1 Peter. Now, in, a, in any building, a cornerstone is very important. A cornerstone is actually the very first stone that gets laid. So when this building was built, the, the foundations, the, the trenches were dug, concrete was thrown, and then when they started building the walls, they would always start in the corner. And the cornerstone would be the very first stone that gets laid. Now, the cornerstone is actually the foundation stone for everything else that follows on afterwards. Remember now, Jesus is called in Scripture our cornerstone. The cornerstone determines where all of the other stones will lie. So all of the other stones lie somewhere in relation to that cornerstone. So if the cornerstone is skew, the wall will be skew. If the cornerstone is not level, the whole wall will be unlevel and skew and might then actually fall over. So it's a marker for straightness and for levelness in building. And then the cornerstone also holds the weight of all the other stones that get laid on top of it. Now very strategically here, People call Jesus our cornerstone. He is our foundation. He is the one who helps us to be able to stay level. He is the one who helps us to know where everything else lies. Everything will be level and true and straight when we build according to where he lies. And then he bears our weight. He bears the weight of everything that comes on top of him. And so when we, we think about communion now, we think about how Jesus actually bore our sins on him on the cross. How he allowed his body to be broken. How he allowed his blood to be shed. Let me encourage you with the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone who is able to bear our weight. The weight of sin is something that can be borne on Jesus, our cornerstone. And so even as we think about rebuilding 
and laying new stones that might have fallen off of another one. Remember that Jesus is our cornerstone. And so as we, as we now partake of the, of the bread and the wine symbolically, let me ask you just to consider now as you sit and pray and carefully think about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us to remind yourself that he is our cornerstone and he's able to bear what we are able to place on him. I'm going to ask Adrian if Adrian could pray for us and then when Adrian has prayed for us, you just take your, take your time. You can come up and take from the bread and the wine and then Malcolm will close at the end for us.